Learning to love ourselves in our messy and complicated truth is hard enough. But what happens when you have that feeling of otherness just hanging over your head, where you don't feel understood even within your own tribe? How do you confidently grow into your own skin or maybe even grow out of it when the road to acceptance and healing is so rough and bumpy? Hey there, it's Zach. Welcome back. I'm not sure if you've taken a listen to the last show. If you haven't, you absolutely should. It's a great conversation about something I'm always talking about, the magic of trans women. And we sat down with none other than T.S. Madison, a very magical woman. You don't want to miss it, so check out the episode when you have a moment. Today, I want to talk about something that's weighing heavy on many people right now, especially given the recent acts of violence against our community. I don't think it's a secret that gun violence is a big problem here in the U.S. We get the horrifying play-by-play about the details, but it's very rare that we hear the stories of victims, the real people that leave us, and the people that must stay behind and make sense of it all. In this episode, I'd love for us to take back that power, that ability to humanize these victims and their loved ones. Our guest today, Vincent Perez, he had a love that was very rare. It's that kind of love that we only see in movies, the passionate, nostalgic, sweep-you-off-your-feet sort of love. But unfortunately, it was a violent event that broke the two of them apart. But before going into that tragic day, I wanted to know Vincent. He grew up on the rough side of town in Southern California with his very Latina mom. Vincent wasn't close to his biological dad, but had a father figure that provided him with a loving home. But being a young gay man came with a set of challenges— especially because he was fighting these ideals stemming from machismo, those unwritten rules that teach men how to be men. Luckily for Vincent, he found an outlet of expression that he loved, dance. I grew up in the ghetto, and I use that in the most loving term possible because in the barrio, like, it's a community. There are a lot of people in this community that support you, and we lived right next to the train tracks in this barrio. And... Literally, my mom was just like, well, I don't want you to turn out like these other kids. And not that it's a bad journey for them, but it was like, I want something different for you. Because my biological father, who was estranged to questionable actions in his life and kind of what he was doing. And I was just, my mom's like, I don't want that for you. So I think for her, just giving me an outlet was very important. And I think for me, it gave me a great way to express myself, especially in this like very dominant, like stiff upper lip, like you were a boy, a man does not cry. And what's interesting is my parents, culturally, we are like that. But my parents, especially my dad, was just like, you can have emotions. Like, it's okay to be X, Y, and Z. Like, you can be sad. And my mom was, I mean, she came straight from Mexico. So I think for her, it was just like a cultural norm that boys had to be strong. But I think as we got older, her expectations of how I should be changed because I think I broke a lot of stereotypes and these like biases she had for queer folk in Mexico. But I love the fact that movement gave me an opportunity to learn who I am. Being gay in dance, I feel like is always an obvious thing. But I tried so hard for many years to like cover it up. And it's like, oh, yeah, I do ballet, but I'm really very masculine. And I think there was a point where I was like, I don't need to do that. I'm gay, whatever, like whatever if I fall into like it's a stereotype. But I just, I don't know. It was such an interesting process for me to go through and coming into it was such a journey that I still look back at it. I'm like, dance made me who I am culturally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. From the age of like 10, maybe to like 18, 19, was never home past three o'clock. 
was always dancing from like whenever I got off of school to like 10 o'clock, would take the bus home, get home at 11 o'clock, have dinner at 11, start the day again at like seven. And I just had a very different life growing up than my peers and my siblings, like just was never home. And I, I appreciate the fact that my mom was trying to do that for me unintentionally where she just wanted me to have an outlet, but it really gave me structure and discipline to be independent. When did you come out as gay? Because uh, you were out as an artist first and the gay came later, which is defying a lot of stereotypes. I came out very late in life. Well, not very late. I came out like 18, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I came to the point in my life where I'm about to go to college. I give no crap about anything that's happening in the family. There's a lot of turbulence happening. And I got to the point where we had this like pinnacle of family problems. And I was just like, you know what, guys? I don't care anymore. I'm letting you know I'm gay. Like, this is who I am. Take me as I am. You cannot judge me for who I am. And I won't judge you for your actions. The message I was trying to send my parents is, I love you unconditionally, regardless of what you guys are doing. You have to love me or you have the opportunity to love me because I'm accepting you for this stuff. And me being gay or queer does not change who I am. It just means I'm a little different. Yeah. You know, it just means like, my family norms and my and the things I would fall into will very much be different than my siblings later on in life, and that's okay. And I think they got to the point where they're just like, okay, we respect you, we love you, and they're okay with it. But I think my parents, specifically my mom, I remember going to college, and she's like, I can deal with you being gay, but do you have to be a dancer? Like, are you going to make any money? <laughs> and I remember telling her, like, she asked me, so what's your major? Like, what are you going to graduate with? And I told her, I'm like, I'm going to be a dancer. I'm going like, to get a dance degree. I've been doing this for 15 years. What, what do you think I'm going to do? And then she like scolded me and she's like, you're not going to make any money. And I said, listen, mom, pointed finger, you don't pay for my education. You should be proud about how I move through the world versus my career. Because you culturally, like, there's something weird in brown cultures, especially when you're underrepresented minority or a BBIPOC. The wealth is attached to the fame that you have in your family. Like, if you're Latino, like, oh, my son's gonna be a doctor. He's gonna be an engineer. Like, it's like this clout building. And I told my mom, what I do with my degree in my life isn't the thing you should be praising. You should be praising who I am as a kind human. Don't focus on the money, the money will come. While Vincent is exploring his own identity, expressing himself and redefining a stereotype through dance, Growing up at the same time was Shane Colombo. He was being raised by a single mom in San Clemente, a sleepy beach town just south of Los Angeles. He certainly didn't have it easy and went through his own set of struggles, overcoming Hodgkin's lymphoma at just 15. But very much like Vincent, he didn't let this stop him. Instead, he made it a point to live a fulfilling life. And soon after, through their own search of happiness and education, the two of them meet in the most innocent of ways, a college fraternity. I love telling this story because it's one of my favorites. I remember I'm very involved at school. I was helping out with the academic departments. I was an RA. I was trying to work full time. I was dancing in a dance company. And, you know, I was also running a fraternity, which I don't think I would ever have thought I would have done. But I saw an opportunity to really start something and help some young men. And granted, I'm not a partier. I don't drink. I don't do anything at the time that was illegal. But for me, I was just like, how can I really help this community? And where can I find the opportunity for me to grow? And I was like, well, I'm great at administrative stuff. I'm great at paperwork. And I remember hosting an event with some potential new members. And I remember seeing Shane. 
I want you to picture this. Like, think about like a house party at someone's house in the sunset. And I remember walking up the stairs in this home. And all I see is Shane there making out with someone. And I'm like, ew. (laughs) And then I walk (laughs) away because I am there to make sure no one's getting in trouble, to make sure like things are okay. And then I leave. And something happened later on where gay culture, right? You see a gay guy, like you're cute. We're going to hook up. Yes. Like, let's do it. But there was something that happened where when I started talking to him, I'm like, hold up. I'm going to step back. And I literally said to him, I have like this long ass message from him from when we first started talking on Facebook Messenger, where it's like, I actually want to get to know you. There was just an air about him. I'm like, yes, 100%. Like, I want to like get to know you. I want to date you. And then I have this photograph that he took. And mind you, at the time when I had met him, he was going back home for his, um, he was in remission for five years. He had cancer when he was younger. And I remember him going home and I remember dropping him off at like a mega bus downtown in King Street. And he took a photo and I remember him giving me a couple of years later this image of this train station and he wrote, this is the day I fell in love with you. And it was just this beautiful message and I, I cherish it to this day because it just brings me back to the salient memories of music and I'm like this is a song that I'm listening to when I think about you and it was like James Blake it was like retrograde or something oh my god I love that song <laughs> yeah and for me it's just like I have this strong experience with him where I'm just like this dude is going back home because he's in a remission mm-hmm. we're gonna connect and then fast forward and I remember him pledging for this fraternity and it's the cutest freaking thing we do something called serenading um, where we serenade sororities. And I remember him sitting in front of this auditorium in the science building and I'm recording it and he's singing to me. And I'm just like, this is the guy I'm going to marry. A hundred percent. This is the guy I'm going to marry. It was just the intent and the way he stared at me and the way he, like, I felt the love. I felt the intention. It's one of the salient memories that I think about. And I, it like, it breaks my heart. <laughs> Yeah, that's like such a beautiful memory because it's not very often in Young Love that you have these really cinematic moments of falling in love. Like what you just described was something from a movie where, you know, the high school sweethearts fall, walk into like a dance or something and someone sings. And that's kind of, you know, what we put in movies saying that this is the dream, but rarely anyone lives it. What was it like to have a dream come to life back then? Did you ever expect that for yourself? I never expected it to happen this strongly with this much force. I don't know what I expected when I met him, honestly. Like, I try to move through the world with no expectations because I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But when I met him, I was just like, man, literally when you talk about movies and, and being the protagonist in these kind of vignettes in your life, I'm like, wow, like we had a lot of those. But I, I realized at that point in my life, I am not the main character. Mm. very early on and that was important for me to realize because shane had this fabulous story of overcoming cancer and coming from a single parent home and naturally for some reason i fell back i was just like this is the man i need to support this is the person i want to care for i felt at that point in my life where i was just like i have to be in your life to get you to succeed and our outcome will be a life together Soon after they both graduated from college, Shane gets an opportunity to attend a pre-doctoral program at Columbia, a huge opportunity. 
But what does that mean for two young men that are deeply connected and clearly in love? For Vincent, it meant supporting Shane through an open, long-distance relationship. And even though this might seem unconventional, this idea that distance and other people was a way to make their relationship work, their connection always brought them back to each other. Long distance is hard, even if you do open relationships, even if you do the video chats, because at one point he was studying abroad in like Wales and Swansea. And we were doing video chats until 7 a.m. before he had to go to classes. And then, you know, like we had all the tools to make it work. And it's really the emotional connection and making sure that there's security there that really like drove it home for us. Yeah. And it's a lot to navigate. You know, it's the emotional security that you have to figure out from long distance of calling, checking oh, in, yeah. showing up for each other. Then there's also like the health security of being like, we're now in an open relationship and you may be sleeping with other people. And how do we navigate this going on? <laughs> Were those conversations tough navigating all of those things, the health, the emotional, the physical, everything? No, I think at first it was because I am I am a Latino man. I am very forceful with the way I talk. I say what's on my mind. And he is very calm and not reserved, but very um, second guessing. And I think we had times of conflict where I was just like, what's the problem? And he's just like, well, I want to talk about this. And I'm like, dude, just say it. Like, you are my partner. I love you. And I think we found a rhythm of communication that really did work for us. And at the end of the day, like the goal was not, I think, for us to find solutions. It was just to make sure that I felt like he felt supported and that I felt supported and that I was taking care of his needs and vice versa. But yeah, it was it was an interesting moment in life. I'm not going to lie. Some very beautiful moments. And it was these series of beautiful moments, one after the next, over the next seven years, that brought the two closer together. They were so in love, so in sync, that finally, on Christmas Eve one year, Vincent decides to pop the question. And like most big, nerve-wracking things, the lead-up to the proposal was like something you'd read in a comedy. The hot chocolate they buy before ice skating just ending up on their lap. That picture-perfect ice skating moment ending up being a long line that isn't worth the wait. Yet still, like their relationship, the two make it work. And so running out of ideas, they agreed to see a movie. And I remember him also before that wanting to show me this art installation that was like just all these lights and it was off because <laughs> it was like too early and there was nothing on. He was like, well, I guess this is the end of the, the light show. Like I think it was the end of the season for it. And we come out of this movie theater and they're on and it was this beautiful music and I love experimental art. I love performance art. I love lights and this thing is on. And I remember like, this is the moment I'm going to propose to him and I pulled out this ring that I bought earlier on and I tell him, I got this for you. And I didn't want to get on one knee because I'm like, look, you and I are equal partners. I want you to know like I'm in it with you. And I told him no matter what happens, no matter what happens in the day in our lives, you know, I'm always going to love you like a hundred percent. And next thing you know, like we're just jumping for joy and we're just enjoying each other's spirit. I just remember so vividly of these lights just turning on and him laughing and smiling and him calling his mom and his family. And, and I'm just like, this is the perfect day, regardless of what happened, regardless of the chocolate milk, regardless of the three hour wait for ice skating, regardless of, you know, it being too cold or being able to do anything. It was the perfect day. It was the most pristine example of my relationship with him where things can go wrong, but that's okay. Because at the end of the day, I have the love of my life with me. 
let's sit with this for a second. Because here we have Vincent, who has literally waited so long to have this moment, to be in the same city as the man he loves, his future husband, only to be ripped away from him in such a horrific way. As gay men, and especially men of color, there's always that thought of danger, the danger of being discriminated against or homophobic violence. And for Vincent, the danger that came with being a gay dancer from the ghetto, dodging sexual health concerns that come with being in an open relationship. But this part of his story is so sudden, so unexpected, and just so tragic that it's difficult to imagine how he was able to pick himself up after experiencing such grief. We were long distance for a while, and even then we were missing each other by planes. Like, we went to Chicago once and we saw some places, and the goal was to see where we wanted to live. And next thing you know, like, he flew out there for, I think, something with his lab. He was supposed to work at the ADAPT lab over in Northwestern. And I remember sending him some some places to go see with a real estate agent. And... You know, he saw the place once by himself and I'm like, is this the one? He's like, yep, okay, let's do it. So (laughs) I signed all the paperwork, went through it. And then I went there to kind of do all the administrative stuff. So I signed the paperwork and I made sure we had a mattress and a bed and dish pots and stuff so that he can eat. And then I would be moving several months later. So we literally missed each other every step of the way. It was hard because the last time I really saw him before the incident, I remember saying goodbye to him. We were seeing family in Orange County. And I remember he's wearing this stupid cat pushing shirt that it's a little DJ. (laughs) And I remember seeing him and taking a photo of him. And I was like, I love you. I'm going to see you very soon. And I didn't think that that would be the last time I'd see him in person. And a few days later, actually like maybe a week later, he was flying to Chicago. And I remember getting a call from him and like, it's beautiful here. Like it's, so picturesque, he got off the plane, everything's going perfect. And he's driving down Lakeshore Boulevard in Chicago. And he's just like, it's so pretty here. You're going to love it. And then I remember him getting home. He's calling me. He's like, I can't get in. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, the keys aren't working. And I remember trying to troubleshoot with him and someone finally let him in. And I remember him finally getting into the front door and he calls me. And uh, it's just so crazy because I remember telling him, because he had he just got in and he's like, I need to go buy hangers. I want to make sure like things are hung up. I'm like, just stay home. Just relax. Go get some food, order some takeout. Just try to do nothing. You've been doing a lot. And he's like, okay, yeah, but I, I really want to get hangers. I'm like, okay. And I remember, you know how on iPhones, you can take photos during, uh, during a FaceTime. I unintentionally did that a few times. And I remember taking this photo of him laughing. And even when I play it now, I'm just like, it makes me very sad. Because mm. that was... Um, one of the last moments I had, because literally 15 minutes later, he died. And I remember checking his location because, you know, like I said before, the tools that we had were, where are you right now? Like, are you at home? Cool, I can call you. Like, I don't want to disturb you if you're out with friends. And so I remember looking at his location and I remember seeing him at the hospital. I'm like, oh, what happened? Like, did he cut his hand? Like, what's going on? And I thought like it was something dumb. And then I remember calling the hospital. I'm like, hey, like, I'm looking for a patient. His name's Shane Colombo. Can you help me find him? They're like, oh, one second. And then I get transferred to the doctor and she's like, I'm so sorry, he just passed away. And I was like, I don't understand. I still, I still don't understand. Like I have a, a PTSD processing issue where it's like object permanence. Like I just, I didn't see him say goodbye. Like it doesn't make sense to me. 
And it was the most horrifying thing because I remember so many awful memories after that. I remember punching a wall in the garage. I remember like seeing all my friends crying. I remember being on the floor. I remember calling his um his manager at his lab and I had found his number on the Northwestern website and it's like eleven o'clock or something his time. And I was just like Shane died, like I don't know what to do. And I remember just calling so many people and it's crazy because I'm the fixer. I like to solve problems and I always had an answer. I always had like some sort of solution. And I remember calling my sister and begging her to tell me what to do because I didn't know how to move. I didn't know how to go from one step to the next. And I just, it just plays back in my head. And it's like the, the worst part of the movie that I didn't think I'd had to experience. So it was, um, it was intense. It's still very intense. It's the memories that I have such beautiful memories of my relationship and my life. And those are the most horrific that I've experienced. I love how Vincent keeps Shane's memory alive in such an admirable way. Because it would be easy to be angry and stay in that place of hurt, of sadness, of hopelessness. But what he has done is completely the opposite. He's been able to not just advocate alongside other survivors, but he's also used Shane's love as a catalyst to create space for more. At that point, I was losing weight. I was not eating. I was by myself in Chicago because I had this like mindset that I have to go. Like, I have to move. And so I remember going and being depressed and on the couch in this home that was empty because all we had at that point was a couch that we had chose like a few weeks before. And I remember this friend calling me and saying, Hey, like, have you heard of every town? Like, do you want to tell your story? I'm like, I was so mad. I was like, no, absolutely not. Like, this is very personal. It's still a very personal experience. And I have reservations at times. But for me, I realized the story is what matters. Like me telling his name over and over again is a way for me to solidify his potential in life and what was taken from him. And when I found out about every town, it was so hard because I'm like, no one's going to understand. No one's going to really understand what I'm going through. And then lo and behold, I come into this conference with all these moms demand in every town volunteers and, and activists. And literally we're all crying. We're all talking about the loved ones we lost and the the manner it happened. And it was just like to have that community and have people there with you to talk about what had happened. It changes the way you think about your relationship to others and the way you move through the world. Cause at the end of the day, like I wanted community, I want someone to understand. And then that happens to me when I talk to a mom's man action volunteer or colleague and they're like, I get it. And I know they get it because they've experienced it. Like either they've been a victim of gun violence directly affected or they're just an advocate. And it's like, it was so important to me at the time. And it still is to be a part of this community because again, telling the story is the way I'm keeping his memory alive, but then also doing my part in this entire political schema to ensure that people who aren't supposed to have guns don't have them. Because again, let me boost up Shane for a second. Cancer survivor putting himself through college, single family home, was volunteering at a hospital, was doing VA research, like literally everything you can think of for this person 
And that was taken away by some stupidity and something that shouldn't have happened in the first place. It's amazing that that still happens in our country, even to this day. Like the statistic is every day, 100 people die from gun violence, which is nuts. And Shane was one of those on on that day. And I think what the work with Everytown has really brought to me is telling the story and being an advocate is the best way to put your energy because it changes you from being not necessarily sad. It's okay to be sad, but it channels that into a different way to ensure like you are being an advocate for, for things that are important to you. Rebuilding a life or even thinking about loving another person might feel like it's impossible. With a love like Vincent and Shane's, it's easy to see how Vincent was able to rebuild a life and even find a new love despite feeling so much pain. Because this deep admiration, this deep respect acts as a sort of guide, a pattern of sorts that he uses to keep loving himself and in turn keep their love alive forever. The love that I had for Shane is not finite. It exists in the ether and it's always there. And I think what brought me a lot of hope is the fact that love is existent. It is still there. I still feel it. I see it in the memories that play in my head. And the fact that I can find love after loss and set myself up for this experience, just it's it's incredible to me. I think just knowing that it's there is always going to be a way to get through hope and to find purpose. But at the end of the day, it's like setting that goal, like I talked about earlier, setting that milestone. Like, what does that what does that really mean for me? Like, where do I want to be? And it's like, well, I want to be happy. I want to be in love. I want to have the things that Shane and I were meant to have. But I also want to be the protagonist of my story now. I have a, a beautiful partner who I love to pieces. His name is James. And the fact that I sit in the middle of James and Shane means the world to me because I know 100% that James cares and loves for me and loves Shane. And I know Shane would love him to pieces. It just brings me so much joy that I, you just have to navigate all that stuff to find purpose and to find love and it's work. I'm not saying it's not work. I'm not saying that it's never going to be easy, but you have to find the purpose and you have to find the end goal. Because if you don't, then it's going to seem like minutia and you're not going to know where to go. And I think Shane for all of that. I don't know about you, but after this conversation, the first thing I'm going to do tonight is give my partner the biggest hug. And it's not just because of the sad parts of the story. It's because of how much hope Vincent brings to the table. The way that he's been able to cope with his own grief is admirable in itself. But it's also the way he's able to lean into that pain, dig deep and help others stand up for safer neighborhoods, stricter gun laws, is nothing short of amazing. Vincent has found a way to survive through his authenticity by literally and simply feeling. Because he shows us that even when times are desolate, those days when life just gets heavy or when the unexpected happens, there's always love inside of us that's worth living for. We are so excited for you to be here for season two of In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. Keep coming back every other week and take in these powerful stories of Black and Latinx people as they take us on their own healing journeys. In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us is executive produced by myself, Zach Stafford, and Yvonne Sheehan, and mastered by James Foster. And our writer is Yvette Lopez. A shout out to our guest, Vincent Perez. Vincent Perez.